Good morning, everyone. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Except for my neuropathy, which is why my shoes came off. So <laughs> if I seem a little shorter, it's because I am. It's funny, when, without my shoes on, my wife and I are eye to eye. And with my shoes on, I'm just a little bit taller, so. <coughs> boots, huh? Okay. All right, everybody, let's uh, start with a word of prayer, and then we'll begin our study this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather together this morning in freedom. We thank you for this blessing. We thank you that we can be good stewards of the resources that you provided to us, uh, the resource of freedom, of time, of a facility, that we can gather together in peace, that we can worship you in song, that we can come before your throne of grace in prayer. We thank you for your word, which gives us insights into realities that we could never know except that you have spoken, and what you have spoken has been recorded for our benefit. Father, we pray this morning as we take this time to look into your word that we will be sensitive to the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, who helps us to understand the biblical text. We pray that we will be challenged by these things. We ask this now in Christ's name, amen. <coughs> You'll have to... Uh, forgive my voice, I'm not quite 100%, I'm still recovering from a cold a week ago and still haven't fully recovered from that. This morning we will be in Acts chapter 2 and I will cover the first 13 verses and I will be uh, reading from the New American Standard Bible, the 1995 update, which is the version that I generally prefer. So in Acts chapter 2, we observe the beginning of the church <clears throat> and the shift to a new dispensation. Luke wrote in Luke chapter, excuse me, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Now the day of Pentecost was ten days after the Lord's ascension into heaven, and I talked about that a few weeks ago where we had covered that section in Acts chapter 1 where the disciples, where Jesus was talking to the disciples, and while he's talking to them, he's caught up into heaven, and of course, you know, he's moving up and they're seeing him. Uh, go up into the clouds and of course they're watching him get smaller and smaller so this would have been 10 days after that so this would have been fresh in their mind this event um, and the physical here we see the physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit uh, in this in this room in this place where they've gathered uh, and this appeared as tongues of fire that rested on each person and again, one has to wonder about the optics of this. What, what did that visually, <clears throat> what did that look like, you know, to see that? Um, and it would have been very targeted and very specific uh, with regard to the work of the Holy Spirit in this particular manifestation. And of course, this was an event that occurred only once in all of Scripture. So this is a one-and-done deal. Now Luke goes on in Acts chapter 2 verse 4 where he tells us, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. 
Now the phrase to be filled with the Holy Spirit means to be under His guiding influence. Some might even say to be controlled by Him. And I think that controlled is a, is a fine way to understand that so long as human volition is not destroyed such that we are not viewed as mere automatons or robots. Because with regard to the filling of the Holy Spirit, I think of a key passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul instructs uh, the church at Ephesus. He says, and do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And the word filled there, uh, pleruste, is a present passive imperative. And the present tense would imply ongoing action. But the, um, uh, the imperative mood is the mood of command, and that assumes intellect, that one has the ability to understand the command. It assumes volition that one has the ability to obey the directive and it also assumes present and or future opportunity because you can't command past action. But that, that uh, imperative mood speaks of intellect and, it, and it implies volition as well. So when we think about being filled with the Spirit, this is something that they were willing uh, to have happen to them, that they were willing to participate in. And I guess that's what I'm trying to get at there. So I, I generally lean towards the word guiding influence because it is the Spirit working in the life of a believer so as to guide that believer with regard to his or her thoughts and words and actions. But we consent to that. We, we say yes to that. We yield ourselves to that. So to be filled with the Holy Spirit means to be under his guiding influence. And it's interesting that the word filled, plerao, as you commonly see it, uh, throughout Scripture um, has this idea, it's translated to be filled, but again it has that idea to be under the influence of. So let me give you a few other examples. In, uh, in Luke chapter 6 verse 11 we learn that the Pharisees were filled with rage, uh, which meant that they were controlled by rage. They didn't have to be, but they consented to that. They, they, they allowed themselves to be uh, controlled by the rage. And, of course, this meant that they were controlled by that. Now, later, the Sadducees were said in Acts 5.17 to be filled with jealousy, which meant that they were controlled by jealousy. So, likewise, to be filled with the Holy Spirit meant that the apostles were controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, the filling of the Holy Spirit is to be distinguished from the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. The baptizing work of the Holy Spirit is... Uh, to use a phrase earlier, a one-and-done deal. That when one comes to faith in Christ, trusting in Him as Savior, believing that He died for our sins, was buried and raised again on the third day and seen by many, when one comes to faith in Christ in the dispensation of the church age, we are at that moment baptized by the Holy Spirit into union with Christ. And the word baptized means to, to place into or to submerge, uh, but the idea has, ha, it, but it has the idea of identification, that you're identifying one thing with another is, is very much, I think, at the heart of it. Uh, but to be baptized in the Spirit, again, is a one-time event and it occurs at the moment of salvation. Whereas the filling of the Spirit is an ongoing activity. So what we see here in Acts chapter 2 is something that will be repeated. We'll see the disciples and others being filled with the Spirit on future occasions. Uh, so again, the filling of the Holy Spirit is to be distinguished from the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. According to Stanley Toussaint, whom I like, he says, quote, the filling of the Holy Spirit is separate from the baptism of the Spirit. 
The Spirit's baptism occurs once for each believer at the moment of salvation. But the Spirit's filling may occur not only at salvation, but also on a number of occasions after salvation." End quote. And he's absolutely, absolutely correct on that. Uh, and an interesting occurrence is noted throughout the Scriptures, and I, I caught this some years ago when I was studying on this subject, and it's funny how, how you read something and you study something a dozen times, and then all of a sudden something pops, and you're just like, well, gee, how did I miss that the other uh, prior 11 times? But, you know, that's part of what it means to be in the Word and to be studying and to have those aha moments, you know, when you're reading something. So an interesting occurrence is noted throughout the Scriptures in which the filling of the Spirit is is commonly followed by speech in which the person communicates divine viewpoint revelation. For example, you see in Luke 141 and 42 where it says, When Elizabeth uh, heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, so there's our phrase, and she cried out. And so we have this comment by her that she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. We see down in Luke 167, it says, And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and then notice what follows, and prophesied, saying. So you, again, you find this pattern that where when we see people filled with the Spirit, they, they, they share something, they communicate divine viewpoint. Of course, we see this in our passage in Acts 2.4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. We see it in Acts 4.8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Uh, down in Acts 4.31, <clears throat> it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. <clears throat> Excuse me again. In Acts 13, 9 and 10, But Saul, who was also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him, and said... So again, we find this pattern throughout. And then, of course, uh, uh, the most passage that's a notable passage is in Ephesians 5, where Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And notice again, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God even the Father. So you see this pattern throughout uh, where somebody, is, again, is filled with the Spirit and then that is followed by speech communicating uh, divine viewpoint revelation. Now to speak with other tongues, the word tongues translates the Greek word glossa. Glossa, it's the word we bring into the English as glossary. Uh, which it communicates the idea of words or language. This is not a heavenly uh, uh, language that is not understandable. Uh, uh, I was raised to believe that when I was a young boy because I attended a, a very, uh, I would say, radical Pentecostal church. We weren't quite snake handlers, but we weren't too far from that. <laughs> uh, it was pretty lively. It was very entertaining, I'll say that. Uh, and, you know, there was Bible reading, and so there were things that we learned. But it was very common uh, to have uh, outbreaks of tongues sessions during the service. And it wasn't until some years later, as I uh, was really getting into the Word and began to study the Word of God, that I began to question some of these things. 
uh, because much of what was communicated, if, if it, really nothing was communicated to be honest, uh, but it was not intelligible, it was not understandable. And I think one of the key passages that jumped out at me was in 1 Corinthians 14, I think it's verse 27 and 28, where Paul says, if you're going to speak in tongues, let it be by two or at the most three, each in turn, and if there's no interpreter, keep silent. So he set, he set three uh, control mechanisms on the use of tongues in the early church because it was being, was being uh, <laughs> I'd say, exploited. It was a gift that the church had. Uh, but Paul says, if, you're, if it's going to occur in the church, it should be two or at the most three. Now, I used to be in church sessions where there would be a hundred people uh, all engaging in supposedly tongues. Uh, and so that raised a question in my mind. And then Paul says, and each one in turn, first one, then another, then another. And yet I would see these people doing this all at the same time. And then Paul would say, if there's no interpreter, keep silent. And again, no interpreter. So I used to raise the question, you know, why would the Holy Spirit supposedly lead you to do... Because every time I would talk with people, they would say, well, what you're seeing is a manifestation of the Spirit here, uh, that God is moving. But it was a question mark in my mind, like, why would, why would God the Holy Spirit lead you to do something in violation of the Word of God? To me, that was a, a contradiction. And so at the end of the day, I had to be able to take the Word of God and use it as the basis for evaluating what was going on in the church activity, as we do all of life, because the Word of God is the reference point for reality, for faith, what is believed, and for conduct, how we carry ourselves. But getting back to the text here, when we think about tongues, tongues, again, translates the Greek word glossa, and we're talking about a known language. In fact, that'll be demonstrated here in just a moment. Uh, and by the way, if, if I were to, and, and it's really just an, it's just an antiquated word. It's just an old English word. You know, if we talk about somebody speaking in their native tongue, we're talking about them speaking in their native language. And so we understand it that way, and that's exactly how it is meant here. So to speak with other tongues meant that God the Holy Spirit was working supernaturally through them to speak a foreign language. Biblically, these were human languages. According to Earl Rodmacher, he says, quote, the word translated tongues here is the normal Greek word for known languages. Speaking in tongues or diverse languages underscored the universal outreach of the church. These witnesses were speaking foreign dialects to the people who had gathered for Pentecost from other nations, end quote. And to quote from Stanley Toussaint again, he says, quote, and evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit was other tongues. And I'll pause for just a moment here because he uses the uh, Greek words heterice, glosice. Now there's two words translated other in the Greek New Testament. One is the Greek word alos, which means another of the same kind. And then you have heteros, which is another of a different kind. And so here it's this heterice, glosice. So getting back to his uh, quote here, he says, "...an evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit was other tongues. These were undoubtedly spoken living languages." The word used in 2.6 and 2.8 is dialecto, which means language and not an ecstatic utterance, end quote. And dialecto is the word we get for dialect in the English. It's a transliterated word that comes over for us. Now this writer talking about me, uh, believes that the church began in Acts chapter 2. 
The believer is added to the church, which is the body of Christ, by means of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in which the Spirit places the believer into union with Christ. By the way, the Bible uses the, ter the term church in a universal sense to refer to the global body of Christ universally, because if the rapture were to occur right now, come Lord Jesus, um, the church all over the planet would be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so it speaks of the local church, but it also, or of the universal church, but it also speaks of the local church like we have here, a local assembly of, believer, of believers. So the church is first an organism uh, before it is an organization. Uh, but biblically both are used that way. But here it's understood as the body of Christ, uh, that is the church itself. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. One body. That's, that's, a, that's a key uh, phrase there, that we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Now the body is none other than the body of Christ. And of course, Paul in Ephesians uh, 1.22 wrote about the church, which is his body. Now the body and the church are one. And understanding this, uh, we consider Luke's words in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, in which he describes the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit as yet future. And you have to pay attention to the use of language here. This is why this is important to follow this. So in Acts 1, 4, and 5, uh, we think of the words of Jesus where he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard from me, John baptized with the water, but you will be, future tense, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So here, this is referring to something that is future. Now the not many days was the day of Pentecost. Later, when Peter was recalling his preaching to Cornelius, he explained in Acts, um, he explained that as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them uh, just as he did upon us at the beginning. Now here I'm citing from Acts 11, verse 15 and 16. But he's recalling this, uh, this preaching to Cornelius, and he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized uh, with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so here it's interesting that he reflects back on this being a fulfilled event. Now, according to Stanley Toussaint again here, he says, quote, this event marked the beginning of the church. Up to this point, the church was anticipated. The church is constituted a body by means of spirit baptism. The first occurrence of baptism of the spirit therefore must indicate the inauguration of the church. Of course, he says, Acts 2, 1-4 does not state that spirit baptism took place at Pentecost. However, Acts 1, 5 anticipates it and Acts 11, 15, and 16 refers, to it, refers back to it as having occurred at Pentecost the church, therefore, came into existence then, end quote. And so he's arguing what I'm arguing, and that is that the church began in Acts chapter 2 uh, at the time of uh, this 
ministry or this coming of the Spirit upon the church. Uh, Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer agrees. He says, quote, The Spirit made His advent into the world to abide throughout this dispensation. As Christ is now located at the right hand of the Father, though omnipresent, so the Spirit, though omnipresent, is now locate, is now locally abiding in the world in a temple or habitation of living stones. The individual believer is also spoken of as a temple of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> the Spirit will not leave the world or even one stone of that building until the age-long purpose of forming that temple is finished. The Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, and that aspect of the meaning of Pentecost will no more be repeated than the incarnation of Christ. There is no occasion to call the Spirit to come, for He is here." End quote. So it seems fairly straightforward that the church began in Acts chapter 2, verses 1-4, through 4, though some of our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ hold to different views. And we will run into this. And, of course, they can have their views and we'll go with God. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Now, interestingly enough, most covenant reformed believers uh, hold that the church began really with the first convert. They would go all the way back to the first convert uh, in the Old Testament because they believe that the church consists of all believers of all time. And so they would argue that we are just a continuation of that church but they would go all the way back to that first convert in the Old Testament. Interestingly enough, and I saw some of this when I was at um, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, that some Baptists believe that the church began with John the Baptist. And they would like to trace that back to his particular ministry, and I think there's flaws to that, <laughs> obviously. But just simply to show that there are diverging views on this, which is why I'm, I'm trying to make a... Uh, a clear and I think um, a good uh, presentation on this uh, particular subject of arguing that it is in Acts chapter 2. And of course other dispensationalists believe that the church began in Acts 13 or others in, in Acts 28. Though we may disagree on this matter, there should always be love and grace. We really should. I think of the passage in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, which is probably one of my life verses. It has been something that has guided me most often in difficult times, but it's applicable broadly, which is that the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. With gentleness, right? correcting those who are in opposition. And so this really should be the attitude of believer when we come across people with whom we are in disagreement within the community of faith. Within the community of faith. So there should always be uh, love and grace. Uh, now covering on, moving on in our section here, uh, we'll pick up in verse 5, which I will read just as a unit and we'll look at um, uh, as a pericope. Uh, it says in verse 5, it says, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Uh, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And Galileans were typically understood to be unilingual as over against uh, bilingual or multilingual. So they posed the question, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? 
And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, he says, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. Now, I, I, rest, I kind of wondered about that, speaking the mighty deeds of God. It, 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 it seems kind of vague, but I think he's talking about gospel information, I think is what is being communicated here. And in verse 12 it says, And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But then others people that I would take to be cynics in the crowd, were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. <laughs> in other words, they've been drinking early in the morning. Um, but you find this sort of thing, by the way, uh, when communicating God's Word. Now, here in this section, we observe the supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit working through the apostles in which the mighty deeds of God were being proclaimed. And according to Charles Ryrie, he says, quote, At first the people were amazed, literally wide open astonishment. Then they were perplexed or at a loss to understand what they were witnessing. They knew that they did not know what was going on. And since ignorance is always a blow to man's pride, they were driven to criticism. They concluded that the disciples were drunk, end quote. And again, just a very straightforward section in that, uh, in that final section there. So let's take up some summary points here, and, and then we'll move forward with the Lord's Supper afterwards. Uh, and this will take me just a few minutes to get through these summary points here. So in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, what we see is God poured forth His Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, just as He had promised, and at this time we see the church being born. In Acts chapter 2, the church starts out as purely Jewish. Uh, but by the time we get into Acts 8 and 10 and 15, this will reveal that Gentiles have an equal place in the body of Christ. And a key passage on that would be Galatians 3, 26 through 28. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. For you are all baptized into Christ. And I take verse 27 here to be a reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For you were all baptized into for you for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one. Notice in Christ Jesus. And that prepositional phrase in Christo is something that Paul uses quite a bit. It's a it's a very it has a, a rich theology to it when one understands one's union, our positional identification in Christ. Acts chapter 2 also marks the transition from the Mosaic Law to the Church Age. And we're going to see some issues surrounding this as we move further into the book of Acts. In fact, we're going to, we're going to see Peter uh, telling the Lord no when the Lord uh, gives him instructions. And Peter has a way of doing this, doesn't he? Uh, and he doesn't say no just once, right? I mean, it's just like his denial. Not once, not twice, but three times. Well, he's not going to tell the Lord no once or twice. He's, he's going to stay true to Peter, and it's going to be three times. And so this acclimating to a new dispensation, I mean, for us, I mean, we, 
we come in and if you grow up and you're in part of a good Bible church that teaches the Word of God and helps to draw out these dispensational distinctions, uh, you come in with a great benefit because you have already in your mind uh, these distinctions that are in the Word of God. But when one is living under, this, uh, under the dispensation of law, and that has been your frame of reference, and then all of a sudden you're coming in to the dispensation of the church age, that acclamation uh, can be a bit challenging. And we're even going to see an eruption in Acts chapter 15 where there's going to be a big division over this whole issue. Uh, about adherence to the Mosaic Law. So, so we're going to see this occur throughout uh, the book of Acts. But again, just to point out that this marks the transition from the Mosaic Law to the Church Age. Now according to Acts chapter 2, tongues refer to human languages that the disciples were able to speak for the benefit of sharing God's revelation with others. The foreign language was unknown to the speaker, but plainly understood to the hearer. In all, about 15 human languages are mentioned uh, in Acts chapter 2. And it's interesting because at the Tower of Babel, God supernaturally divided the languages of men in order to scatter them. But here, God is temporarily reversing that in order to unite them. And by the way, God created language. In fact, He used language to bring everything into existence. He spoke. That's the power of His Word, right? We think of Genesis 1.1. Uh, where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and, and we know that He spoke. Uh, and God, when He created Adam, when He formed him from the dust of the earth in, in Genesis 2, and then he, he's, he's there with biological life, and He breathes into His nostrils the breath of life, the Neshamach Chaim, and at that moment He takes that breath and He becomes a living soul, and, and immediately God begins to in, interact with him, that there's conversation, that he directs him, he places him into the garden, he gives him instructions to be fruitful, to multiply, to guard the garden, to name the animals, to safely eat from these trees, but not from that one. And so language was used by God, and it was given to mankind, and really becomes the basis. It was Originally its intention was for theological communication. And so sin has corrupted that over the years. But here we see uh, back in Genesis 11 where God uh, uh, divided the languages, but here he temporarily reunites them or, or reverses that for the sake of uniting people. Uh, and the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost really marked major changes for believers in the church age. And this would include regeneration. It would include spirit baptism. It would include the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because if you study the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, He really just came upon a few select persons. Prophets, priests, kings, artisans, warriors, judges. Um, but in the dispensation of the church age, the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. Every single believer. And this is, this is quite wonderful. And so Paul says, "...and do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you?" And some of the distinctions between Israel and the church, you know, you had a priesthood that was specific to the tribe of Levi, but in the dispensation of the church age, uh, we are a kingdom of priests, Revelation 1.6 makes very clear. They gathered at the temple, which was in Jerusalem, but our body is the temple and we gather where we want. They were to go into the land, we are sent out to many lands. They offered up animal sacrifices, we offer up spiritual sacrifices. And so these distinctions really need to be understood and drawn out when one studies through the New Testament and thinks about the changes that have occurred in the dispensation of the church age. 
Every believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit. This also is an innovation. Paul says in Ephesians 1.13, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed. Sragizo, that's a tough word to say. Sragizo. And it's that, that the Holy Spirit is Himself the seal that was given to you. Uh, to seal the deal, as it were, between God and you and the relationship that has come into being. We've been given spiritual gifts. This is given to all believers. Peter says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. In serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The Spirit also illumines the minds of believers when you have those aha moments when you're reading or you're learning something. Uh, the Spirit fills each believer, and this again is an ongoing thing. And then we talk about the walk of the Holy Spirit. And again, that this is true for all believers. We have such a special, uh, we live in such a special time in human history. And to understand the portfolio of spiritual assets that God has given to us is so amazing and so enriching, and it speaks so much of His goodness towards us. But it also helps us to understand how God has blessed us and equipped us to live out this wonderful, wonderful thing called the Christian life. And it really is a wonderful life. Now the first five activities that I've mentioned above occur at the moment of salvation and are not repeated. However, the illuminating ministry and walking ministries of the Holy Spirit are ongoing throughout the believer's life from regeneration onward until that believer is taken to heaven. The Holy Spirit never forces Himself on the Christian, and by the way, He can be grieved and or quenched. We're given two negative commands, quench not the Spirit and grieve not the Spirit. And it is only the submissive believer who is learning and living God's Word on a regular basis who really knows the spiritual walk. And again, it is such a, a wonderful life uh, to have that and to walk in that. It is so enjoyable as, as a Christian. So that's going to close at Acts 2, 11 through 13. Uh, briefly, do we have any questions or comments before we transition over to the Lord's Supper? Any questions or comments from anybody? Martin in the front row. Yes, sir. Isn't it been able to prove this to be a fact, but I've thought about applying it and seeing that there's not almost exactly as many here languages as there are disciples. So hmm. it's almost like there was a language per disciple. So each one of them had different interpretations. Mm -hmm. So when we sent them out, that they could go in these, these many different directions to all the world. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that, Martin, but you've given me something to think about there, buddy. I appreciate that. Uh, there may be some merit to that. I'll have to look more into that. I don't know that one could be dogmatic on that point, but certainly uh, to think about that as far as the number of disciples and the number of languages that were being spoken, uh, one could extrapolate out from that and possibly you know, understand it that way. That's interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? All right, well, if we're good with that, let me switch over to the Lord's Supper. And this will take me just a few minutes as I read through this. I'll try not to leave the men standing too long. In Luke 22, verses 19 through 20, uh, Luke tells us, And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, the Lord's Supper is mentioned in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Interestingly enough, it does not appear in the Gospel of John. Thank you, sir. Uh, but it is also mentioned by Peter in his letter to the Christians at Corinth. Uh, now, the Lord's Supper is also called the Eucharist, and this comes from the Greek word eukotisteo, eukotisteo, which simply means to give thanks, uh, which is, in fact, what Christ did uh, when he instituted this church ordinance. It is also called communion, from the Greek word koinonia, koinonia, which means communion, fellowship, or sharing, because it took place during a community meal where believers fellowshiped with each other during a time of Bible study and prayer, just like we're doing here. How about that? Right? So the Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus on the night that he and his disciples were celebrating the Passover meal. And this was the night before his crucifixion. And the Passover meal celebrated God's deliverance from the final plague on Egypt as the Lord passed over the homes of those who had sacrificed an unblemished lamb and placed its blood on the doorpost and the lentil. The flawless lamb foreshadowed the sinless humanity of Jesus who is a lamb unblemished and spotless, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is our Passover lamb, Paul tells us, and his death paid the price for our sins. Now Jesus' death instituted the new covenant which was given to Israel and will find its ultimate fulfillment in the future millennial kingdom. Because Christ inaugurated the new covenant, some of the spiritual blessings associated with it are available to Christians today, specifically forgiveness of sins and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The elements of the Lord's Supper include two things. It includes unleavened bread and red juice. I attended a church one time where they actually served wine, and I didn't know that, and I was a little surprised when I got it, but okay. Um, but red juice, I prefer. But the elements of the Lord's Supper include unleavened bread and red juice. The unleavened bread symbolizes the sinless humanity of Jesus. And the red juice symbolizes the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And throughout the church age there have been four major views concerning the elements of the Lord's Supper. There is the Roman Catholic view which is called transubstantiation, which teaches that the bread and red juice without losing its former taste becomes the literal body and blood of Christ. Then there is the Lutheran view, which is also called consubstantiation, which holds that Christ is present in and with the bread in, and the red juice in a real sense. Then there is the Reformed view, which is also called the spiritual view, and this teaches that Christ is spiritually present in the bread and the red juice. Then there's the correct, I mean the evangelical view, <coughs> which, sees the bread, which sees the bread and red juice as symbols that point to the body and the blood of Christ. The first three views that I mentioned see Christ actually present in the bread and juice, whereas the last view sees the elements as symbols that point to Christ. By the way, the last view is similar to how one understands the sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament, which sacrifice, by the way, did not actually contain Christ, 
but rather pointed to him and his atoning work on the cross. Likewise, the Lord's Supper does not actually contain Christ, but points the believer to his sacrificial life and substitutionary death. The Lord's Supper is a picture of love and selflessness of Christ, who gave his life for the benefit of others. When Christians partake of the unleavened bread and the red juice, we are recognizing our relationship with God through the life and the death of Christ. Just as we are nourished bodily by physical food, so we are nourished spiritually by the life and shed blood of Jesus who died in our place. Eating the bread and drinking the red juice is a picture of the believer receiving the benefits that have been provided by the life and death of Jesus. By the way, it is a sin to partake of the Lord's Supper while behaving selfishly toward other believers. And Paul makes it very clear that God will punish those who do so. A proper understanding of the Lord's Supper really should lead to unselfish love toward others. And that's what Paul is arguing in his letter uh, to the Corinthians. So before we partake, let's have uh, a moment of silence. The moment of, of silence affords us the opportunity to come before the Lord's throne of grace and to confess our sins privately to Him so that we can be restored to fellowship. And after the moment of silence, I will lead us in prayer and then we'll uh, partake. Dear Heavenly Father, we call you Father for one reason and one reason only. And that is because we have trusted in Christ as our Savior. We have come with the empty hands of faith and trusted in Christ and received that which you have to offer for us. Forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and the gift of righteousness and many, many other blessings that you have bestowed upon us. And this comes to us freely by grace because none of us earns or deserves any of it. And Father, we are so thankful that we can call you Father. And we are thankful for this time of fellowship together today as we study your word, as we pray, and as we think upon our Lord and Savior and his life and his death upon the cross. And Father, we pray this morning as we partake of this Lord's Supper that this will be a meaningful time as we reflect upon the Lord and what he has done for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it and said it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Father, we thank you for this day and for this time of fellowship together. Father, we thank you for the nutritious food that we are about to receive. We pray that our fellowship today, Father, will be honoring to you and edifying to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.